Good morning, church. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us this morning. And today we're going to wrap up our series, Seven Reasons Why We Can Trust God. And one of the reasons I've loved this series is because for so many times in church life, we tell people, trust God, trust God, trust God. And we know intuitively that's the right answer. But at the end of the day, I think we all still struggle with that sometimes. And we want to know, okay, I, I know you tell me to trust God, but why should I trust God? What is it about God that makes God dependable? What is it about God that makes God trustworthy? And so we want to know the why. And so the goal of this series has been to give us seven reasons why we can trust him. And as I thought about this earlier this week, I thought, you know, what better series to come into in the season that we find ourselves in our country? When we planned this series, we had no idea the epidemic and the pandemic that we're going to be facing today. And as we go through this, and as we wrestle with all that's going on in the world around us, what better resolve for believers to have than to say, Lord, I trust you. I choose to trust you. And so this series has been all about the why. Why can we trust God? And we said one reason we can trust God is because God is the great I am. He is sovereign, he's eternal, he reigns, and he rules, and he is the great I am. Another reason we can trust him is because God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He's ever-present. He's everywhere. He is all-powerful. He holds all things in his hand and is ultimately in control. But some other reasons we can trust God is because he loves us. We can trust God because he cares for us. And today we're going to talk about we can trust God because he is faithful. One of the reasons that we as believers need to understand why we can trust God is because God is faithful. Now, when I say faithful, here's what I mean by that. I mean that God is who he said he is, and that God will do all that he's promised he will do. So when we declare that God is faithful, that's not just some random statement we make or some abstract statement. When we say God is faithful, what we're saying is that God truly is who he says he is. So when scripture tells us that God is our provider, that's exactly who he is. When scripture tells us that he's an ever-present help in a time of need, that's exactly what he is. When scripture tells us that God is our comforter and our encourager and many other things, that's exactly who he is. So when we say God is faithful, we are saying that God is who he says he is and also that he will do all that he's promised he will do. There's over 7,000 promises in scripture. And he keeps every single one of them. Today, we can trust God because God is faithful. But the truth of the matter, and probably where the tension is for many of us, we know that, right? We know that we can trust God. We know that we should trust God. And we know all, maybe all the reasons why we can trust God. But at the end of the day, the tension for us is while we know it and we know that God is faithful, we still struggle, right? We still wrestle. We begin to think things like this, like, well, if God is truly faithful, why am I struggling financially right now? If God is truly faithful, why did my husband get laid off from work? If God is truly faithful, why have I gotten laid off from work? If God is truly faithful, listen, I've been serving God. I've been loving God. I've been living for God. I've been the light of Christ in my workplace. I'm giving faithfully to the Lord. So if God is faithful, why is all this bad stuff happening to me? See, that's when this concept gets real, isn't it? It's different when, it's, when it's, it's somebody else dealing with this. But when it gets personal and it hits home with us, that's when the tension arises. Yes, we know God is faithful, but 
We wrestle with, if God is really faithful, why am I going through this? Or we begin to think, well, if God is truly faithful, why does it seem like all the wicked of the world? Why does it seem like the people who have no regard for the things of God? Why are they succeeding? Why are they prospering during a time when I'm struggling? They appear to have no struggles. See, I think the tension that we wrestle with when it comes to saying that God is faithful is what we know to be true and what we see in the world don't seem to match up, right? What we know is, yes, God is faithful, but what we see sometimes is the antithesis of that. We look at the world we live in and we back up and go, but if God is faithful, why is all this stuff happening? And if you're watching today and you wrestle with that, you know, I was talking to somebody this week and they made this comment. I think this message is one of those messages that we will always need to come back to. It's a message that we will wrestle with. We will wrestle with this passage and this mentality over and over and over again in our lives. So with that being said, I'm gonna ask you to find a piece of paper. I'm gonna ask you to find a scratch pad and I'm gonna ask you to take notes. And here's why I want you to take notes. I truly believe that the topic we're gonna look at today and the passage we're gonna look at is gonna be something that we're gonna to need to come back to during different times of crisis in our lives. So if you find yourself in this tension of knowing that God is good, but looking at the world and not sure, I want you to look at me, with me at a guy in scripture, a guy, a, a passage in Psalms where a guy wrestled with the very same thing that we wrestle with. And I want us to look at what he knew, what he saw in the world, and where that led him spiritually. So if you have your Bibles, you've got your iPads or your smartphones or any kind of device, I'm going to ask you to grab that and go to Psalms chapter 73. Psalms chapter 73. And as we go through this passage, there are really three things I want to draw out, three things I want you to notice about this passage. The first thing is I want you to notice in the very much out of the gate, we see a public declaration. Right out of the gate, we see a public declaration. Look with me in verse 1. It says this. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, he says, listen, out of the gate, starting off the psalm, as he begins to write this, and as he begins to reflect on the nature and the character of God, here is what the psalmist says right up front. God is good, truly, meaning for certain, confidently, I know that God is good to those of Israel who are pure in heart. Meaning, I know that God loves those who love and who live for him. Here's ultimately, in summary, here's the declaration the psalmist is making. You ready? God is faithful. That's what he's saying. As I look at the world and I think about the foundational truth of who God is, here's the conclusion I come to. God is faithful. God truly is good to those who love him and live according to his purposes. Those in Israel, those who are his children, God loves them and he blesses them. And he's saying, listen, when you think about God and the nature of God, here's my conclusion, that God blesses those who are his children. Why does he bless us? Because he's faithful, right? Now, we believe this, don't we? You and I, we, we believe this. We believe that God is faithful. We believe that when we think about the foundational doctrine and truth of who God is, we too will conclude that God is faithful, that God blesses those who love him and live according to his way. And the reason he blesses us is because he is a faithful God, right? We all agree with that. But let's go back to the verse. I want you to see something in the verse. It says, truly God is good, that word good in the Hebrew is the word tov, and it literally has 
no defined meaning. I love words and I love definitions of word, but if you were to look up the word tov and the Hebrew, the word for good, it has no definitive definition, which means for the writer and the readers, the definition of what good means would either be implied or it would be assumed. And obviously for this reader, this definition was something he assumed. He assumed that when he said God is good to Israel, to those who love him and are, are, are pure in heart, he's assuming that God, the good means that God is going to protect their way of life. Meaning that if God is good to Israel, that means, must mean to him, he is assuming that that means that God is going to protect their way of life. Well, what does that mean? That means that they are going to experience freedom from sickness, Right? It means that they're going to be protected from the enemies that come against them. It means that they are going to have fruitfulness in the land, that they're always going to have enough at times of harvest. And for this writer, and probably for the readers who first got this, they were assuming that when you say God is good, tov, the assumption was that that means God is going to protect our way of life, which means protecting us from disease, protecting us from enemies, and making sure that we have all that we need. And that was the assumption they made. Now, one thing I want to say to you before we move on is this, is that their assumptions, as we will find out, were misguided. As we will find out, the assumptions that obviously the writer made and maybe the readers made were misguided. They were wrong assumptions. Because here's the truth. Just because we go through times of sickness and disease, does that mean God is not faithful anymore? Just because we have moments where enemies come against us, does that mean God is not faithful anymore? Absolutely not. Or if there's moments that we feel like we, the, the harvest wasn't enough for them or we don't have enough of what we need, does that mean that God is not faithful? Absolutely not. God is always faithful. And so the psalmist out of the gate makes this public declaration, God is faithful. Now, while his understanding of faithfulness was misguided, the declaration is still a foundational doctrine that we would agree with. God is faithful. So we've got this public declaration. And secondly, I want you to notice this, an inward struggle. So he declares this public statement, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is faithful. But then he kind of has this inward struggle, not public, but inward struggle. Look at me in verse two. It says this, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My step had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this psalmist has made this profound foundational doctrinal statement, and we would all say yes and amen to. But as he began to think about it, he had this inward struggle. He says, but as for me, what I see is not what I said. In other words, yes, I know that God is faithful, but when I look at the world around me, I don't always see that. I don't see God being faithful to his children. I don't see God protecting them from sickness and disease. I don't see God protecting them from enemies. I don't see a harvest that is so fruitful that they have more than enough. I so when I look at the world, I don't see these things. Rather, here's what I see. I see the wicked prospering. I see the people that are against the things of God, people that have no regard for the things of God. I see them prospering. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying this, what I see is God blessing the wicked. You ever been there? You know that God is faithful, but when you look around the world around us, and maybe we find ourselves in the same category going, you know, I don't know. 
What I see is not what I said. What I see is it seems like God is blessing those who are against him. It seems like God is blessing those who care nothing for him. And as a result, look what the guy said. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant, meaning while I saw their prosperity, I wanted what they had. I no longer cared about this thing of faith. I wanted what they had because obviously God is not blessing the, the faithful and the, the, his children. He's blessing the wicked. So I want what they had. I mean, this guy has a deep inward struggle that is going on inside of him. What he knows and what he sees are not the same thing. And he is wrestling inside. He goes as far to tell us how he thinks the, the, the wicked are prospering. Look with me in verse four and five. He says this, for they have no pangs, which means struggles, until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in troubles, no hard times as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. In other words, here's what he says. The wicked are prospering like this. They have no struggles. They aren't going through any hardships. There's nothing difficult about what's going on in their lives. And then he talks about, he says, you know what, knowing I struggle with that, and here's how these people seem to be prospering, but he goes on to talk about how the wicked are living. Because they have no struggles, because they seem to be living a life of ease, here's how the wicked are living. Look with me in verse six. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment, meaning they are living arrogantly, and they are living disrespectfully. They're just living however they want to live. And look at verse seven. Their eyes swell out of fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. Meaning they are just pursuing whatever they want to pursue. They are just following the desires of their heart. There's no boundary. There's no moral compass. There's no guardrails in their life. They are just going after the things they want to go after. They are living a self-absorbed life. Look with me in the next verse, verse eight. He says, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression, meaning they speak ill of other people and they are doing all they can to take advantage of them. These are the wicked. Now, this is who he's talking about. These are the way the wicked are living. And this is the very thing he wants. They're living in such a way of arrogance. They are living, pursuing whatever they want and they are making use and taking advantage of other people. And look what he says in verse nine. This may be the worst of all. He says, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongue struts through the earth, meaning this, they even blaspheme the name of the Most High God. That's how they're living. And then look at verse 10 through 12, because this, this is something that obviously bothers the writer. Look what he says. Therefore, his people turn their back on them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. In other words, they are living a frivolous lifestyle. They are living a lifestyle of blaspheming toward God, and yet they're facing no accountability. No accountability. And he even says here, is, is, is he says, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? He's even saying, God, you're not even holding these people accountable. These people that are taking advantage of others, these people that are living arrogantly, these people that are blaspheming you, even God, you are not holding them accountable. Now, I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Here's a guy that's made this great declaration. God is good to those of Israel, meaning God is faithful. But when he looks at the world, that's not at all what he sees. He sees the wicked appear to be blessed 
by God. He sees the wicked that are free from struggles, the wicked that are freed from hardships, the wicked that are living arrogantly, the wicked that are blaspheming God, the wicked that are taking advantage of others, the wicked that are they're doing all these things and seemingly have zero accountability. As a believer, would that frustrate you too? I mean, I feel his frustration, don't you? Now listen, what he knew was God was faithful, but what he saw was the opposite. And so let's look where it led him. Look with me in verse 13 and 14. This this is one of those passages, listen to me, church. This is one of those passages that most of us are not willing to admit that we've been here, but almost all of us have been here. Look at verse 13 and 14, it says this. All in vain, say that with me, all in vain. Have I kept my heart clean? and wash my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked and every morning. He says, all in vain. Here's, listen, here's where what he knew and what he saw. Where did it lead him? Here's where it led him. It led him to make this, this kind of statement that living a life of faith is living a life of vanity. How sad is that? That living a life for the Lord is nothing but vanity. He uses an interesting literary structure called, in the Hebrew, called a marisma. It means using two opposite things to express a total thought. He uses the heart and he uses the hands. And what he's saying is, everything I have believed in my heart and everything that I've done with my hands has been for naught. Man, what a, what a place for a believer to find themselves, who started out declaring that God is good and God is faithful, but who looks at the world and goes, but I'm not sure that's true because what I see is not what I know. And what he concluded was this, that living a life of faith to the Lord is for nothing. It's vain, has no merit. Everything I believed in my heart, everything I've done with my hands in service for God is all vanity. Man, have you ever been there? Man. See, we're never there when things are good in life, right? We're never there when things are going the way we hope they go. But don't we find ourselves there sometimes like maybe the crisis win right now, people that are financially struggling, people that have been laid off, people that are wrestling with what's going on in the world. I mean, there's moments when crisis happens that many of us find ourselves right here. What we know and what we see is not the same. And our conclusion is maybe what I believe and maybe what I've done for the Lord has been worthless and of no benefit and is totally in vain. And I think if we were all honest today, this morning, we would acknowledge we've all felt that way, right? Now, here's what I find interesting in the passage. I don't want to beat this guy up too bad. I think we resonate with him. I think we can say, yes, I've been there before, or maybe I am there right now. I don't want to beat this guy up too bad because when you look at the passage, he does something very interesting. Yet, even though he's struggling, this guy remains responsible with his feelings. Look with me in verse 15 through 17. It says this, If I had said and spoken this, in other words, if I had expressed my emotions, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be wearisome task. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God. Listen, while this guy was struggling internally, yes, he made this profound statement, but while he's struggling internally and has come to a conclusion in his mind that everything he's believed and everything he's done is in vain, he least maintained a level of responsibility. How was he responsible? Well, first of all, he says, I kept this to myself. I was responsible not to share my doubts, my concerns, my frustrations with your children, because if I had shared it with them, I would have betrayed them. Now think about that. What is the writer saying is, I was at least in the midst of my struggle, I was responsible with my words. Can I just say this with a lot of love in my heart? I think one thing that we wrestle with in today's culture as we think because we can get on Facebook and post what we think and it doesn't actually come out of our mouth, but it comes through our fingers, that that's not, that we're being responsible or irresponsible with our words. We say things on Facebook as if it should not have any merit or shouldn't impact anybody else. And what we find out is we're wrong. Maybe we're wrestling with some stuff and we go on Facebook and we begin to air out how we feel. Maybe it's about God, maybe it's about our community, maybe it's about our nation, maybe it's about our leaders, but we begin to air out all that we think. Listen to me, whether you believe it or not, somebody's listening to you, somebody's watching you and your words matter. And in the face of that, we have to be reminded, we have to be responsible with what we say. This guy says, even in the face of struggle, I stayed responsible. I kept my feelings to myself, first of all. But second of all, guess what he did? He sought guidance, right? He says here in verse 17, or 16, but when I thought how to understand this, my my struggle, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task until I went into what? The sanctuary of God. This guy who's wrestling was responsible to keep his words to himself so that he would not cause someone else to stumble, But he also sought guidance. Whose guidance did he seek? Not the wisdom of man. He sought to be in the presence of Almighty God. Did you see that in the passage? Even with his struggle, he didn't try to go out to the wisdom of man and build an army of people who felt the way he felt. He went to the only place that he knew that he could get the clarity he was looking for. He went to the presence of Almighty God. And in the presence of God, he found clarity. And in the presence of God, he found clarity understanding. Let me remind us all of something. We are going to go through crisis. This crisis seems like a mountain that we, that seems insurmountable in some regards. But let's just be real honest about this. This is a horrific crisis. But when we face crisis later in life, you better believe we will. We're living moments in our life where we experience loss and hurt and heartache, and we will find ourselves back at the same place this guy found himself with what we believe and what we do are vain. Sure we will. But will we be responsible like this guy and guard our words and make sure that we seek the right counsel? And the right counsel is to get alone and get into the very presence of Almighty God and let him and only him give us the clarity that we need. Now, because of the clarity that this guy gains, that leads me to the third thing I want you to notice, and it's this, a heart of restoration. The third thing I want you to notice in the passage is we see a heart of restoration. Now, what I mean by that is this, is that a heart that has been restored to a right way of thinking. That's what I mean. A heart that has been restored to a right way way of thinking. And because this guy with his struggle went into the holy place and then got into the presence of God and found clarity, we now see this guy has a heart that has been restored. A heart that now is restored to a right way 
of thinking. So what does a heart restored know? A couple of things. First of all, verse 18 says this, truly you set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In other words, a heart that has been restored is a heart that knows that God is truly faithful. A heart that has been restored, a heart that has been the presence of God and gained clarity is a heart that truly knows that God is faithful. Not only faithful to love and to care and provide for his people, but he's faithful to hold accountable the wicked of the world too. Look what he says. You put them in slippery places. They fall to ruin. They can be destroyed in a moment. You despise them as phantoms. He's saying, listen, Lord, as I've got alone with you, the clarity you gave me was this, is that God, you are faithful. Yes, you provide and protect and care for your people, but you also hold the wicked accountable. So a heart that is restored is a heart that knows that God is faithful. Let me give you another thing, the heart that is restored knows. It's found in verse 21, 22. When my people, when my, I'm sorry, when my soul was embittered, when I was prickled in the heart, I was a brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Let me read that again. Just listen to what he says. When my soul was embittered, in other words, when my soul was struggling, when I was pricked in my heart, I was a brutish and ignorant. I was a, like a beast toward you. See, a heart that's been restored, a heart that has clarity from God and God alone, yes, is a heart that knows that God is faithful, but it's also a heart that knows that we are ignorant brutes before God. That's encouraging, isn't it, right? That we are ignorant brutes before God. Here's what I mean. Here's what I know about Doug, and here's what I know about you. None of us know everything, but we serve and worship a God who does. And there's moments in our life where we think that we know everything and sometimes we bow up against God and that's exactly what this guy has done. This guy stated something that's so true that God is faithful, but as he looked at the world, that's not what he saw. So he began to bow up against God. He began to bow up and go, maybe everything I've done is in vain. And in the end here, when he got clarity, he was reminded how wrong he truly was. It's almost as if this guy is saying, Lord, what was I thinking? Lord, what was I thinking? I know you don't bless the wicked. I know that. I know that you are faithful to your children. You're good to them and you bless them. I know that guy. It's almost as if this statement this guy gives is an act of repentance on his part going, God, I know what I was thinking and I was wrong. I was a brute beast before you, God. And see, I think a heart that is restored, a heart that is in crisis that God restores us to a right way of thinking will help us understand and know that yes, he's faithful, but also know that sometimes that we are like ignorant brutes before him, that our ways are not his ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. He is always right and we are not. But there's one more thing a heart restored knows. It's verse 23 through 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me into glory. The heart that is restored also knows that we can trust God because of who he is. We know that we can trust God because of who he is. Listen to what he says here. Even in my struggle, even in the midst of me bowing up against you, God, even in the face of my struggle, here's how you responded to me. You held me by my right hand. You counseled me. And one day you will receive me. Now think about that. 
God, even in my anger, even in my frustration, even in my struggle, even when I bowed up, even when I was, when I was just struggling with this stuff, you never left me. You were right there with me. You were holding my right hand. You were nurturing and counseling me through this. And one day you're gonna receive me. Meaning God, you've never ever given up on me. See, a heart that has been restored is a heart that knows that we can trust God because of who he is. You know who he is? He is the great I am. He is the one who knows all. He's the one who's ever present. He's the one who's all powerful. He's the one who loves and cares for us. And he's the one who's faithful. There's one more thing I want you to notice about the heart of restoration. And this may be my favorite part. Look at me verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Listen to what he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength in my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But it is good for me to be what? To be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Listen to what he says. A heart that has been restored is a heart that longs, that longs to be near God. A heart that's been restored, that knows he is faithful, that knows he can be trusted, is a heart that should long to be near him. Did you pick up on what he said? There's nothing this world has to offer besides you. There's nothing I desire, God, but you. You are my strength. You are my refuge. God, you're all I want. See, what I love about this passage is it's like at the very end of it, he comes to some realities. He finally realizes what good really means. Good is not this assumption that we're going to be free from sickness or are free from our enemies or we're going to have this, this, this great fruitful harvest. That's not what good means. Good is being near God. He said, it is good for me to be near God. That the, the definition of good went from undefined to now it is defined. Goodness is not these peripheral assumptions. Goodness of God is being near him. It is good to be near God. So when he says, truly God is good to those of Israel who are pure in heart, what he's saying is the goodness of God is that the people that love him and live for him, he's present with them. He's with them. He's right beside them. But he also learns another lesson. He learns what true prosperity is. True prosperity is not, is not being free from struggle or free from hardships or having stuff. True prosperity is being in a personal relationship with Almighty God. You hold me by my right hand. You counsel me and you will receive me. He learned some things. See, this is one of the reasons this is my favorite Psalms is because this guy comes full circle, doesn't he? He starts with this great statement, God is faithful. And then we see verse after verse after verse of this struggle to the point where he says, what I believed and what I've done is in vain. But yet he gets into the presence of a holy God and God begins to change his heart. And at the end of the day, what he does know, his heart that's been restored now knows, yes, God is faithful. Yes, God can be trusted. And as a result, I desire nothing more than to be near God. That's what I desire. So maybe today you're like this guy. Maybe you're like him and you struggle. 
between what you know, which is God is faithful, and what you see, which is suffering and sickness in the world with which we live. And you see that these two things don't match up. Maybe what we need is what he needed. And that's a moment of clarity, right? And the only way we can get a moment of clarity is to find ourselves in the presence of God, seeking his counsel and his wisdom and asking him to restore our hearts. God, would you help my heart and restore it to the point where it is thinking rightly again? Would you remind me, Lord, that you are faithful? Would you remind me, Lord, that you can be trusted? And as a result of that, Lord, may I desire nothing more than to be near you. So for those of you that are watching today that maybe don't have a personal relationship with Christ, to be near God means to be found in a relationship with Christ. If you wanna be near God, the only path for you to be near God is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe you've never made that decision before. In just a moment, you're gonna have a chance to do that. But if you're a believer and you're watching, to what, is it, Doug, what does it mean for me to be close to God? What does it mean to be near to God? Well, for us to be close and near to him is all about remembering. It's about remembering why we can trust him. He is I am. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, loves us, cares for us, is faithful. Well, I mean, to be near him is remembering why we can trust him, and listen, and then doing it. Because of who he is, turning everything over in my life to him and go, Lord, because you are the great I am, because you love me and care for me, because you know all things and you have all power, and because you're faithful, I trust you with everything. I trust you with my finances. I trust you with my marriage. I trust you with my job situation. I trust you with my relationships. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, what I'm asking you to do, would you ask God to give you a moment of clarity? Would you have a moment in his presence where you'd ask him to restore your heart to right thinking, where you acknowledge that he is faithful, that he can be trusted, and that you just desire to be near him? And the way you're gonna do that is by remembering who he is and then doing it, trusting him. So right now, right where you said, I'm gonna ask every head bowed and every eye to be closed, even in your home, in the comfort of your living room, would you just close your eyes and just bow your heads for a moment? And if you're that person that's watching that's never trusted Christ and you desire nothing more today than to be close to him, that can only happen through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's as simple as just praying, say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I believe with all my heart that you sent your only son to die on a cross for me because you love me. And today I surrender my life to you and I invite you to be the boss and the master of my life and I ask you to forgive me my sins. And if you'll pray that, you and me on Team Jesus forever. And if you surrendered your life to Christ just then, all of heaven's rejoicing because of your decision. And just a minute after we worship for a little bit longer, I'm gonna come back and give you a way to connect with us. Let us know the decision you've made. But I hope if you don't know Christ today that you made that. And if you're a believer today and you desire to be close to God, would you just acknowledge who he is in your life? Would you acknowledge all these seven things that we've been talking about for the last seven weeks? And then would you conclude with this, Lord, I choose to trust you. With whatever I'm holding back, I choose to trust you. Why? Because I know, God, you are faithful. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I love you. 
I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the psalmist. I feel like in my life, so many times I resonate and I can relate to this guy. So many times in my life, I know it's true that you're faithful, but when I look at the world, that's not what I see. And there sadly, Lord, have been moments in my life I felt like that what I've believed and what I've done has been in vain. But God, I thank you for those moments I've had the chance to be with you and that you brought clarity where there was once confusion and you gave me wisdom that I did not have. And as a result of that, Lord, I can stand here today and say, I know that you're faithful. I know that you can be trusted. And the greatest desire in my heart is to be near you. God, I pray that's the cry of every believer that's watching this today, is that we want to be near you. And Lord, for us to do that, may we just remember who you are. And may we make this commitment today. Lord, I choose to trust you. And Lord, may those be words we don't just say, but words we do. And then God, I pray for that person that a moment ago prayed that prayer. May your Holy Spirit just surround them and rejoice with them and let them know that that's the biggest decision they could ever make. And may you give them the courage to let us know the decision they've made so we can rejoice with them. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts and our lives only as you can. For it's in your precious and your wonderful son's name we pray. And all God's people said amen, amen. We want to continue just with a moment of worship. What better way to end this series than declare the goodness and the greatness of our God? So worship with us.